Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 23, The Battle of Marengo. Okay, folks, so we've finally made it to the momentous Battle of Marengo, a battle which not only helped Napoleon keep his grip on power in France, but also helped him cultivate the persona that we think of when we hear the name Napoleon today. Now, much of that was due to the propaganda that Napoleon himself helped promote following the battle, but much more was because of the impact the battle would have on the wider war of the Second Coalition. So let's pick it up from where we left off last week, with Napoleon trying to find Melis and meet him head-on in a decisive engagement. Now, we mentioned last week that after Napoleon learned of Lon's victory at Montebello, he waited on news of Melis's position in order to see what the next moves would be. But one thing that he was sure of was that Field Marshal Ott would have no viable path out of Alessandria, which is where the Austrian headquarters was located. Now, this was critical because he knew that he would only need to look out for one main army rather than two. So he decided to cast a wide net around the valley to ensure that Melis would have no route east to escape away from Alessandria. Now to set the stage for the battle geographically speaking, let's give you a little lay of the land. The village of Marengo is about two and a half miles east of Alessandria, near the confluence of the Tenaro and the Bormida rivers. Now, this last part is critical because there are three main roads that converge at Marengo, beyond which lays a bridge crossing the Bormida, which itself double bends, creating a natural bridgehead for an army attempting to cross, needing only small pontoons to make up the short difference across the different bends. Did we get all that? Great. Now, along the Bormida lie the three villages of Castle Seriolo, Spanetta, and of course, Marengo, in sort of a rough triangle shape. Now, the small stream of Fontanone passed between Marengo and the Bormida and also lay between vineyards, farms, and plots of marshland. But beyond that, the land was considered so flat and well-suited for 19th century warfare that historians have said it was one of the few places in northern Italy well-suited for cavalry to launch full-speed attacks at the enemy positions, something which would come to be an important part in how the battle was won. Initially, however, the French did not have their cavalry properly scout the area of open plain and merely accompanied the infantry as a supporting unit as they marched to Marengo, something which almost lost the battle before a shot had even been fired. Now, on June 13, 1800, Napoleon rode to the village of San Giuliano Vecchio, which is about four miles east of Marengo. Within an hour of his arrival, he was informed that Melis was preparing to march on Genoa, and so Napoleon first sent General Dachet, yes, fresh off the boat from the faltering Egyptian expedition, by the way, and Division General Jumboudet with a division of 6,000 men south to Nova Legori, which is in Genoa, while also sending Division General Jean-François Cornu de la Poipes, division of 3,500 men north to the other side of the Po. He then sent two other units north under generals whose names I won't trouble you with, while sending General and future Marshal of the Empire, Claude-Victor Parrain, supported by Muas Cavalry, to Alessandria, where they confirmed the Austrian position of about 3,000 men at, wait for it, Marengo, yes. 
So General Victor then deployed his men along the Fontanoni stream, where the Austrians, once seeing the approaching French, debated building bridges to outflank them. But unfortunately for the Austrians, they did not have enough pontoons to make this possible, and they were forced to cross the Bormida River, where they then had to look to try a single direct assault on the French lines along the Fontanoni. Now, heavy rains would stall the action for a while, and they would also fill the streams and rivers before the French would secure the village, taking 100 prisoners with them. So, tit for tat, I suppose. Fighting resumed, and would continue until about 10 p.m., but by then, the terrain and high waters forced the men to their quarters for the evening with no further fighting. Now, with little activity in the valley and no campfires visible, the French had made the assumption that the Austrians had no intention to fight there the next day. They would, of course be dead wrong. Now, that night, Napoleon, again, still unaware that an Austrian attack would be upcoming, went through the camp and began questioning many of the Austrian prisoners, some of them completely unaware of who they were speaking to, and when they would eventually find out, ended up being astonished by his modesty and relative amnesty. He asked many questions a typical general would ask, where are the Austrians positioned, how many men are there, what are their attack plans, of course, etc., etc., but Napoleon was asking because he assumed that he could gain at least some relative information on going on an offensive to find his Austrian counterparts, completely ignorant of the fact that the Austrian rearguard that Victor had chased out of Marengo was quietly turning around and being joined by a massive reinforcement led by Melis himself. So by sunrise on June 14th, the Austrians would outnumber the French nearly 2 to 1 on the battlefield, 30,000 to 15,000. With Napoleon having sent those other divisions in different directions, he would need to withstand a massive Austrian onslaught before reinforcements could arrive. On the Austrian side, Melis's plan was simple. Crush the French, knock them out of Italy, and out of the war. So while the French were in their camps and lulled into a false sense of security, the Austrians built floating bridges, tethering them into place in the middle of the night, establishing the much-needed bridgeheads for their assault the next morning. They would sleep with low fires, making it appear as though their numbers were much smaller than what they would end up being by sunrise, and thus, when the sun came up at 4.30 a.m. on June 14th, a day which would end up being defined by the intense heat as much as it was for the battle itself, the French awoke to the sounds of guns firing from 30,000, again, 30,000 Austrians and almost 100 guns. For comparison, at the start of the battle, the French employed only 15 guns, so yeah, to say they were outgunned is both a figurative and literal statement here. Now, while the first shots of the battle came somewhere around 6 a.m., the battle did not really begin in earnest until around 9, because Victor, despite likely seeing a sea of Austrians, failed to notify Napoleon. Even then, Napoleon didn't begin to realize the seriousness of the situation until he saw Gaspard Gadon's division under Victor being thrust back. Had Napoleon been alerted even an hour earlier, it's likely the French would have been able to easily detach the floating bridges and stabilize the line. But by 9 a.m., it was just far too late the Austrians were already beginning to surge across the bridgeheads. But interestingly, the Austrians would make a critical mistake. Had they surged across the bridge in units, like they normally should have, they probably would have routed the French. But curiously, they waited until all men were in formation and decided to cross together. This allowed Gardon's men to gather themselves and hold some of their ground, which is exactly what Berthier, who had a critically strategic view of the battlefield from a small hill in nearby Casiana de Buzana ordered Victor to do. Now, this was probably the most underrated aspect of the entire battle. Had Gardon, 
and subsequently Victor's men been routed, Napoleon likely would have been defeated in a matter of hours, toppling not only his army, but most likely his position as first consul. In fact, you can bet your bottom dollar that there were a few men back in France who were banking on such an event happening. <coughs> CS. <coughs> now, at the minimum, their resistance was critical because they likely would have been enveloped, cutting off all communication back with Milan. But as we've mentioned now close to 100 times, luck always seemed to find Napoleon in the beginning of his reign. Gardon's men were able to halt the Austrian center from entering Marengo, and Victor's men were able to hold their position amidst intense enemy fire for almost three hours. Think about that. In intense heat. Now, this is even more impressive when you take into consideration that Gardon's division fought on hard, flat soil, meaning that there was even more susceptibility to ricocheting balls and shrapnel. When Gardon's men were exhausted, Victor then pulled them back to the Fontanone and replaced them with Chambolyac, but he soon lost his composure and fled. Now, at the same time all of this was happening, Murat ordered François Etienne de Kellerman's cavalry division for support to help reinforce Victor's line. Now, remember Kellerman's name because he is going to play a major role in a couple of minutes here. By 10 a.m., with the battle now in full force and Napoleon realizing that it was indeed a full-on assault and not a ruse to try and attempt to escape by Malus, <laughs> well, at least not yet, he ordered Lon towards Casina La Barbota, northeast of Marengo, to help shore up Victor's critical right flank. Lon then ordered Watrin's infantry division to drive the Austrians out of the nearby farm, and they were able to drive them back across the Fontanone before eventually being pushed back themselves, but refusing to surrender, and it did buy some time for the other units. Saying in La Marseillaise, the French famously refused to abandon the Fontanone line, urinating on muskets to help cool them down from the constant fire. It was here, around 11 a.m., that Napoleon finally entered the battlefield something which Victor later admitted reanimated the exhausted troops and gave them further life. And the timing could not have come at a better time, because Long was now being pushed back by Ott's infantry division, with Long's right flank bent back and running dangerously low on ammunition. And so without any artillery, and almost completely surrounded, Long ordered a general retreat over the plain, but the retreat was slow and his division suffered numerous casualties as they advanced at less than one mile per hour. Napoleon was now presented with a huge dilemma. His miscalculation of the total number of Austrian men, as well as his own, was beginning to come home to roost. He needed reinforcements quickly if he was to have any chance of saving the day, as well as his hold on power. So with only General Jean-Claude Monnier's division and the Consular Guard waiting in reserve, Napoleon ordered both to help shore up the right rather than hold Marengo, believing, correctly as it turned out, that the former was of more important strategic value. At 11 a.m., he sent desperate words out to Deshaies to come to their aid and to bring Boudet's division. Quote, I had thought to attack the enemy. Instead, it is he who attacked me, read the orders. In the name of God, come back if you still can. In another stroke of Napoleonic luck, though, Deshaies had been delayed in his original mission by the swollen Scribia River from the rains earlier and the previous winter snow, meaning that the message arrived quicker than it intended, and he told Napoleon to expect him by 5 p.m., and his arrival would come just in the nick of time. Meanwhile, by 12.30 p.m., Lon moved the rest of his exhausted force to face Field Marshal Friedrich Heinrich of Angottensheim's division in a hook shape, looking to help Victor, who was still getting battered in the all-important center. Now, despite furious firefights over the pontoon bridge crossing the Fontanone, with furious counterstrikes by Kellerman's cavalry, the French position became untenable by 2 p.m. Victor, unable to hold his position, withdrew to the southeast, followed quickly by Lon. 
Marengo was abandoned altogether, and Melis would lead two cavalry squads to try and capture them. Now, to say the French situation was dire would be the understatement of the 19th century. They were retreating in the center, completely broken on the left, and were nearly encircled on the right. Napoleon knew he needed to defend the vitally important Tortona Road, which would lead to Milan and therefore their headquarters, but did not have sufficient manpower to do so in a frontal assault, so he deployed his reserves to the right. Now, Napoleon had Lon lead this group, knowing he could depend on them to hold the line and, if necessary, be able to facilitate a line of retreat correctly. Fortunately for Napoleon, though, that would not be necessary. But the French were far from out of the woods. Dot still presented a significant problem for Lon, who, with only 600 men, would not be able to sustain the line for longer than a couple of hours, not enough time for the reinforcements to arrive. So Napoleon ordered Monnier to send General Claude Carras Saint-Cyr and his 700 man, 19 Légeret, to the Castel Seriolo in the northeast of the battle center, while the 70th line under Monnier moved to take Ott in the rear, and the 72nd line would be held in reserve should Ott push back, which, after an hour-long firefight, he did. Battle over, right? Wrong. With all of the momentum seized, Melis made the stupefying decision to leave the battlefield and return to Alessandria, where he planned to announce to Vienna that his men had won the battle and knocked Bonaparte off of his pedestal and likely his position of power. He delegated his authority to his subordinates, something which would prove to be an unconscionable error, believing that all they needed to do was finish off what had been a splendid little engagement. But as we all know, this is not how the battle would play out. Why did he do this? Was he simply that confident, given how the day had progressed to that point? Probably. But you never want to tempt fate, and that's precisely what Malus did. And historians still have no idea why he did this. It is possible he suffered a concussion, or four, after having not one but two horses shot out from under him, or it's just possible hubris got in his way. But whatever the reason, Malus bolted for Alessandria and left the rest of his field marshals to try and finish the French off. His next message to Vienna would certainly be the one of more importance. By 3 p.m., the Austrians began to threaten Alain's right flank with their cavalry. Napoleon made the decision at this time to send 900 men from his personal consular guard, who were currently in reserve to the northeast near the village of Villanova. Now, receiving additional ammunition from nearby columns, including the 96th line, who would later try to take credit for saving the day, they marched to Lon's defense and fended off Ott's assault by forming squares and stabbing at the horses and using their small artillery to break the charge. They then faced an onslaught from the Austrian infantry, which encompassed close hand-to-hand combat, before three additional cavalry charges forced the guards to retreat back to Villanova. However, the time that they bought in their stubborn resistance allowed for Monnier's division, who were also in reserve, to perform their maneuvers, gave Lon the time he needed to regroup his men, and afforded the entire French force the opportunity to gather themselves for the coming evening. Napoleon would award over 20 decorations for the guards' performance and would later refer to them as walls of granite. Without them, the night would have come early. But because of them, the night was where the battle would be won. Now, the guards' resistance also allowed for their and Monnier's controlled organized retreat. And it should be noted, from the perspective of 18th and 19th century warfare, to have such an organized retreat in the face of heavy enemy fire without breaking out was a considerable success all its own. And it also allowed for the guards in Monnier's divisions to inflict some damage on the Austrians as they moved back to San Giuliano. That they did so on little water, in sweltering heat, and without rest for upwards of eight hours? Well, that's nothing short of exemplary. But even with this resistance, they were still retreating, 
and Napoleon could not replace the men he was losing, as the Austrians could. By 5 p.m., he was down to only about 6,000 men, 1,000 cavalry, and only six guns against an Austrian force nearly three times as large. And even with that reality staring him in the face as bullets flew literally all around him, it was reported that Napoleon had relished the moment and spoke as if he were winning the battle rather than being a few advances away from complete annihilation. That was Napoleon. You could not convince this man he was going to lose the day. With thundering footsteps being heard off in the distance, Napoleon was certain that victory would be his. And those footsteps, of course, would be those of Dachet's much-needed reinforcements. Just after a large Austrian infantry was preparing to advance, Napoleon ordered Berthier to organize a safe retreat while he went to a nearby village to scout for Dachet on a roof. When he heard their horses and saw the dust columns his divisions made, Napoleon mounted his horse and raced out to meet Dachet personally. When Napoleon was informed that an additional 6,000 men and 9 guns were not far behind, he sent orders to Berthier to abandon the retreat and to prepare for a counterattack. According to legend, when Napoleon informed Dachet of the situation and asked for his opinion, Dachet replied, quote, This battle is completely lost. However, there is still time to win another. And indeed there was. When Dachet arrived at the battlefield, a vigor struck through the French ranks like a lightning rod. Lan, Monnier, and Watrin got their men into a line, ready to face an Austrian advance that they assumed would be the last and triumphal one of the day. But Napoleon would have none of that. Riding between the ranks and imploring his men, he cried out, quote, We have gone back far enough today. Soldiers, remember, it is my custom to bivouac on the field of battle. For those unaware, by the way, a bivouac is a military encampment. Now, a key element to the success of the French that night was that the French were actually quick to form their initial attack line, while the Austrians, their numbers be damned, or perhaps because of them, were slow to continue their advance. Boudet's 9th Light Infantry Regiment, later named the Incomparables for their indispensability throughout Napoleon's reign, moved ahead and surprised the Saint-Julien Austrian column before heading a steady retreat back to Dachet's position, drawing the Austrians to the north. The front of the regiments were blown open by Barmont's artillery, and just like what had happened at the Battle of Rivoli only three years earlier, an ammunition wagon was struck by grapeshot and exploded, causing immediate chaos and shock among the Austrian ranks. Scattered and disoriented, the Austrians regained themselves only to see Baudet's division charging right at them. Now, while the Austrians attempted to push back Boudet's advance, they were attacked from the side by Kellerman's cavalry, having been well hidden in the grapevines this entire time that lined the battlefield. This proved decisive, as it caught the Austrians off guard on their left flank, while many of them were preparing to fire off musket rounds. It was an utter rout. A 400-man cavalry sent the Austrians fleeing, taking 2,000 prisoners in the process. The attack was not without significant loss for the French, however, as Dachet was shot from his horse during the rout, and his body would later be found amongst the dead. Napoleon would only find out of his death in the battlefield later, exclaiming amidst the commotion, Why am I not allowed to weep? But the battle was not over. Kellerman, now joined by Murat, led another cavalry assault and sent the Austrian line back to their infantry, causing even further chaos. The disorganized Austrian rear, now having been charged by their own van, was then charged again by the columns of Lan, Monnier, and the Consular Guard from all fronts. The Austrians, who only a few hours earlier were on the verge of ending Napoleon's rule before it even had a chance to begin, were now in complete retreat. 
Shocked from having the initiative of victory snatched from under them, they moved back to Alessandria altogether. Ott, who had only recently secured his victory at Genoa, now had to come face to face with the man who sent him back to Austria. Marengo would largely be blamed on him and Malus, and Ott would never again hold a position of command. For Malus, who had left the battle to celebrate early, it would be the humiliation that would come to define him. Kellerman's cavalry charge was obviously instrumental in winning the battle for the French, though Napoleon offered him little congratulations and believed it more luck than true military prowess. Yes, the irony of that statement is not lost on me either. Kellerman naturally was infuriated, supposedly screaming back to the first consul, quote, I'm glad you are satisfied, General, for it has placed the crown on your head. Now, whether he actually said this to Napoleon is, of course, debated, but Napoleon would give Kellerman a division to lead less than a month later, and often turned a blind eye to the looting Kellerman would be notorious for committing while on campaign. In any event, the charge was the piercing blow that ended what would be one of Napoleon's signature crowning achievements earlier in his career, the Battle of Marengo. As Napoleon predicted, the French would indeed make camp that night on the battlefields. In total, the Austrians lost just sort of 1,000 men, suffered 5,500 wounded, 3,000 captured, and had 13 guns seized while dumping another 20 into the Bormida rivers to prevent the French from furthering their artillery plunder. The French suffered equally, 1,000 men dead, 3,600 wounded, and 900 captured, but their victory was unquestioned. Napoleon not only secured France's presence in northern Italy, he cemented his reign over France and its dominions. Quote, The fate of a battle is the result of a single instant, a thought, Napoleon would later say when recounting Marengo. The decisive moment comes, a moral spark is lit, and the smallest reserves accomplishes a victory. The victory at Marengo was a watershed moment for Napoleon and for the French. Now, while we've mentioned probably a million times now that the battle helped Napoleon solidify his position as first consul and put to bed any inklings of counter-coup back in Paris, the battle also furthered the seeming aura of invincibility that surrounded Napoleon. Many of the generals who began to doubt him, especially during the arduous crossing of the Alps and at the start of Marengo, soon fell back into silence. His skill, his resilience, and his luck had not abandoned him. The same, however, could not be said for the Austrians. After the battle, Napoleon needed to return to Paris and send Berthier to the Austrian headquarters in Alessandria to begin the talks with the armistice. Melis, still in shock at how his assured victory turned into utter disaster, entered into peace negotiations almost immediately. The Convention of Alessandria, as the talks have become known in history, were signed on June 15th. Now, the Austrians had hoped that they would only need to give up Piedmont and Genoa, but Napoleon refused and demanded that they retreat back behind the Po and Mincio rivers, creating an even greater buffer zone between France and the Austrian-held eastern Italy. The convention ended the hostilities between the French and the Austrians, and the Austrians agreed to give the French Tortona, Alessandria, their headquarters, Milan, Turin, Pisa Gettoni, Arona, and Piacenza within the week, the fortress of Coni by the 24th of June, and the castles of Seva and Savona, and the cities of Genoa and Urbino by the 26th. The land between the Chiesa and Mincio was designated as a neutral zone not occupied by either army, and the French also allowed the Austrians to retreat to Tuscany with the majority of their army. Great Britain, as an ally of the Austrians, had hoped to negotiate a peace alongside Austria, but Napoleon was insistent that both countries sign separate peace accords, and thus fighting would continue later in the year, 
but that is something that we will get into next episode. For all intents and purposes, though, the Battle of Marengo was the decisive blow that won the War of the Second Coalition for the French. It was just that important. Now, the Convention of Alessandria has often been considered as one of the most disgraceful capitulations in history, in the words of British historian Thomas Henry Dwyer. The Austrians, while beaten, still had a large army at their disposal and likely could have planned another attack on the much smaller French force the following day. But instead, Melis was quick to sign peace papers almost immediately after their retreat, probably fearing that he had no momentum left. Indeed, many historians have noted that Melis had thrown the initiative away rather than Napoleon winning the battle. But alas, what was to be done? It was over. The ink had dried, the Austrians were done in western Italy, and Napoleon would enter Milan two days later to a hero's welcome. The Cisalpine Republic was reestablished, with a French puppet government, of course, and Napoleon would depart for Paris knowing that Marengo, in the words of French historian François Furet, had served as, quote, the true coronation of Napoleon's power and his regime. The convention papers were delivered to Emperor Francis later that month, and soon ratified by the court of Vienna, though the Austrian government refused to accept the terms or give up any of Austria's holdings. Now, this back and forth would continue throughout the summer and early autumn, but to summarize, Britain entered into a treaty with Austria basically stating that Austria did not have the right to negotiate with France before February 1801 without the consultation of Britain. Their reward was £2 million sterlings in exchange. Now, as I mentioned, we'll get into the more detailed descriptions of those negotiations at Lunaville next week, but suffice it to say, by November, the war would resume in earnest. Now, lastly, the Battle of Marengo proved to be a massive propaganda victory, just as much as it was a military one. In reality, a last grasp Hail Mary's victory, Napoleon mythologized the battle in army bulletins, as well as the units he personally led during the fighting. Napoleon tried to take as much credit from the efforts of men like Kellerman and, more indirectly, Dachet, while extolling perhaps much undeserved honors on Bessaret and his men. Years after the battle, and well into the empire, there was little to be able to distinguish fact from fiction when stories of Marengo were recounted. The battle became synonymous with Napoleon's invincibility and a huge reason for why he was who he was. Roads and food, chicken Marengo anyone, were named after the battle. Books were written in Napoleon's image to commemorate its, quote, legend. And Napoleon would often reference the victory in much of his works later in life. It was as, as if what happened that day after the last shot was fired was far more important than what actually took place on that fateful June day. And that seems like a pretty good place to leave it here this week. Because before all the back and forth of the summer would take place, Napoleon would be on his way back to Paris to shore up another bleeding ulcer that he wanted to put to bed once and for all. And that was, at long last, making peace with the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs>